Well, we are back in the Gospel of John here uh, this morning. So if you take your Bibles with me and uh, open up there to John chapter 15, verses uh, 18 to 27, we're going to actually finish the chapter here uh, in uh, the Gospel of John. So we'll be getting close to ending this. Uh, This is my 16th year in the Gospel of John. I was told that by Jennifer, by the way. She said she first came to this church. I was in chapter 1, and it's only taken 16 years to get through 16 chapters. How about that, huh? All right. I I hope to do this before I die, the rest of it. But, you know, we'll see. But uh, this morning, we're going to talk about the implications of following Christ Uh, In a world that is under the power and dominion of Satan. You know, the world hates uh, the biblical Jesus and what he stands for. And uh, by extension, his followers uh, as well. Especially because Jesus isn't here anymore, but we are. And, you know, history, both ancient and modern, uh, has certainly affirmed Uh, Jesus's prediction that he will make uh, in this passage that we'll look at here this morning. And it will be a certainty uh, for all those who are living under the lordship of Christ that they will suffer some kind of animosity or persecution uh, for the sake of their relationship with Jesus Christ. So uh, let me just uh, show you what we're going to do here this morning. This is uh, really pretty simple. We're going to look at the world's uh, hatred and how that is uh, expressed. We'll look at the source of that hatred in verses uh, 18 to 21. We're going to look at the culpability of that hatred in verses uh, 22 to 25. And uh, we're going to end this morning uh, on a high note with the Spirit's witness in verses uh, 26 to 27. What I'd like to do before we pray, though is uh, read through uh, our passage here this morning. So let me uh, do that by starting there in verse uh, 18. So we can kind of hear the word of God in one chunk, one sitting. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them... They would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the father the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father he will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning let's pray heavenly father as we open the word this morning to hear 
these wonderful truths. Some, though they are wonderful, they are at the same time difficult and devastating. We pray this morning as we hear from our Lord Jesus Christ, um, these uh, sobering truths, let it penetrate our heart. Let it uh, really cause us to, to think thoughtfully here this morning about what it means to be a follower of Christ and pray for those who don't know you here this morning, that it would uh, affect their hearts and help them confront them with the truth of your word. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. All right. So this morning, uh, what we'll start here first, as we look um, at our outline is uh, the world's uh, hatred. And we'll start there with the source of that hatred in verse 18. If the world hates you, Jesus said, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, if you recall in the previous section, uh, Jesus explained the privileged position that his uh, disciples enjoyed. That their status had changed from servants, he says, to I now can call you my friends. And, you know, as we talked about in that last message as friends of Jesus, they would now be privy to inside information, so to speak, insight into God's will from his only son, a privilege not even afforded the Old Testament prophets. But with that said, there is certainly a cost involved as well. The world is certainly going to hate you. You know, the Apostle John, he conveyed this uh, same warning uh, to his readers in his first epistle. In chapter 3, verse 13, he, he simply said this, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. You know, th this isn't the first time that Jesus talks about the world. But let's just take a minute to refresh our memories about the nuance of the world. And, you know, in John's writings, uh, whether you're talking about here in the Gospel of John or in the epistles of John, the world represents the world system. You know, that is, it views the world as organized in rebellion against God. So it looks at the world morally, so to speak. So this moral connotation, right, uh, is that the world is a community of rebels. It's a community of rebels united in its hatred against God and all that he stands for because light exposes darkness and testifies against their evil deeds. This is a reminder that regardless of all the religions and philosophical systems that are extant in our world today, it really only comes down to two major worldviews. It's Christianity on the one hand and this world system that is under the dominion of the devil. So you're either living for Christ's kingdom or you're living for the devil and his kingdom. There is no third option, biblically speaking. So Jesus presents something of a timeless principle here. One that is true in every age. He wants his disciples to know that the animosity that they receive from those who are part of this world is to be expected because of their relationship 
to him. Jesus represents what this world system hates. And as a result, it's, it's going to hate those who stand in solidarity with him as well. You know, that's, uh, you know, a sobering reminder, right? For all of us. That's what you sign up for when you become a Christian. You know, you, you put a bullseye on yourself. For the rest of the world and, you know, many in our world will be more than happy to take a shot at you because of your relationship to Christ. You know, if you are sitting here, you're not a believer and you, you hear me say all those things say, wow, that's, that's terrible. I don't want to be the target of the, of the world's animosity. That seems like a cost too high. Then it is a cost too high. If you, if that's not what you want, if it's not worth it to follow Christ, don't become a follower of Christ. Because that is the cost. That's what it means to count the cost. By the way, this was true 2,000 years ago. And it's just as true today. You know, as you grow more mature in your relationship with Christ, it will be increasingly more obvious that you are not part of this world system. And your life will begin to convict the world of its sin. And you know what we find in our world Increasingly more is that the world never tolerates that. Again, there's a bullseye on you if you're a believer. Two contrary truths are stressed in the gospel of John. And we see them here. Christ's disciples are known by their love for one another. Whereas the world is known for its hatred for Jesus. Well, verse 19 If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You know, as Jesus speaks to his disciples, he reminds them of who they are now as opposed to what they used to be. You know, they they used to be from this world system. Just like everyone else, and if that were still true, they wouldn't experience animosity, hatred, and persecution. No, they would be welcomed. They would be loved. They would be accepted. They would be embraced. Because they were on the same team, so to speak. The world system team. The world would still love you. Because the world always loves those who are like themselves. So Jesus is telling his disciples that if they still belong to this world system, they'd know it because they would be embraced by it. But you know, that wasn't the case. Because all of that changed when Jesus chose them out of the world to transform their lives to be different and to live different. Notice That Jesus chose them. In other words, he made the first move. His choosing is the reason that they became disciples, not the other way around. This is humbling, right? For every single believer to come to grips with the fact that it isn't because of your intrinsic goodness or good sense As to why you became a believer. It's all attributable to Christ and his choosing of you. You know, this is true of the disciples. 
right? This is what he's telling them directly. It's true of us as well. You know, they now live for a different master and they play on a different team, so to speak, right? When you get chosen. And so now what happens? You're viewed as a traitor. You know, rebels don't have sympathy for former rebels, you know, as, um, D.A. Carson has pointed out, he said, former rebels who have, by the grace of the king, been won back to loving allegiance to their rightful monarch, are not likely to prove popular with those who persist in rebellion. So, you know, Christian, I I hope you're able to see Jesus's striking comment for all it's worth, as you just focus on that this, this morning. The world hates you. Are you okay with that? You know, many aren't okay with that. And it's enough to keep them from coming into the kingdom. Tragically, many people are horrified at the thought that the world hates them. Because more than anything, they want to be loved by the world. They want the world's acceptance. They want the world's praise and accolades. And this is what the Bible refers to as the fear of man. And to their sad end, many will go to their graves living to hear man's praises rather than God's. Are you one of those people sitting here this morning? Here's the problem, however. You won't stand before these same people on judgment day. Those same ones who praised you in life won't be there to help you when you stand before the Lord after death. And you know, it's at that very moment that you will realize in horror that you got your priorities in life entirely backwards. But the only problem is now it's too late. But thankfully it's not too late now, right? It's not too late now. Fear God not man, and live for the praise of God and not the praise of man, and you won't have to worry about facing the Lord in judgment. Now, for many Christians who have come to grips with this truth, have wrongly concluded that since the world hates us, then what should we do? Well, let's withdraw or separate from the world altogether, right? And history has shown us That people, Christians, have tried this. Professing Christians have tried this. For example, uh, I don't know how many of you have heard of the ancient ascetic hermit uh, who was named Simon the Stylite. He lived from 390 to 459, so very early uh, in church history. But um, what he's known for as an ascetic uh, was he lived on a platform that was raised 60 feet above the ground in order to keep himself unstained from the world. And he stayed on that perch until the day that he died. 60 feet from the rest of humanity. You know, he, you know, you think to yourself, well, how in the world would you be able to do that without falling off? That's a good question. Well, um, he remained on his perch tied by a rope. So that he couldn't fall off. The only problem was the rope 
lacerated his body, he became uh, infected and maggot infested. And uh, physically, though, separated from the world. This is kind of gross. I would tell you if you take my church history class, maybe I'll tell you this one day, but uh, about this, but they would regularly fall out of him, the maggots and, and all that. But anyways, no one, that's, that's a story for another day. You know, no one could ever reach him. No one could ever reach him at 60 feet, but I would contend that likewise, he was unable to reach anyone either. If you know what I mean, is this how our Lord intends for us to reach our lost world? You know, the scripture doesn't call us to withdraw or separate ourselves in that sense, right? Physically. And we ought to be willing to engage our world as believers and bear fruit. You know, just a few verses earlier, Jesus said these words. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. And, and the rest of this is important that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. That was in verse 16. And as we talked about the last time we were together, That meant bearing fruit specifically in the realm of world missions or evangelism. Certainly has more uh, application than that, but not less. And that is certainly the most direct way to engage our world with the gospel. But it's not the only way, right? There are many arenas like your workplaces, your schools, your government, your social gatherings, that you can bring a distinctly Christian influence and seek to shine your light in the darkness. It just may be that God will use your witness um, to call people out of the world just like he did when someone called you out of the darkness through their witness and gospel call. Verse 20, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. You know, Jesus is first uh, recorded to have used this expression back in 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 16. He said, a servant there is not greater than his master. Same thing that he said here. But if you remember in chapter 13, he said that in the context of Jesus washing their feet. And there, if you recall, it was applied to humility and the call to serve one another. Right. And so the punchline was, look, if Jesus is able to wash their feet they shouldn't hesitate to wash each other's feet. Well, here in our context here this morning, the same principle, a servant is not greater than his master, is applied, but in the area of persecution, right? If they persecuted me, and many of them did, right? Don't think that you're going to avoid it. Why would you think that? If they persecuted the greater, they're not going to persecute the lesser. 
if the master has gone through this kind of suffering, you know, he tells his original disciples sitting there talking to them. Don't think that you will somehow avoid it. Jesus wanted to make sure that his disciples, you know, didn't miss the point. Now think of it like this, right? Once the target of the world's hatred is removed, right? The only way that the world can express their disdain for Jesus is by doing the best or the next best thing, right? Take it out on his disciples, the ones who are closest to him, right? Again, although this is addressed uh, to Jesus's first disciples, it certainly has application for believers today, for all of you who named the name of Christ, who are sitting here this morning. In fact, the irony is that the more your life grows in holiness and conformity to Christ, uh, you can expect that hatred, animosity, and persecution towards you will grow as well. You know, in the second half of the sentence, we see a similar principle emerge. He said this, if they obeyed my word, and again, some people, some, some of you have, then you could rest assured that there will be others who will obey your words as well. Again, speaking to his disciples. So it's not all bad news, right? Some received Jesus's message while he was here on earth, and some will likewise receive the apostles message as well. And all this to say that people's response to the apostles will reveal what they think about Jesus, either good or bad. If they love Jesus, then they will, you know, and they kept his word, then in the same way, they will keep your word as well. If they hated me, persecuted me, you can rest assured they're going to hate you and persecute you as well. Verse 21, but all these things... They will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So Jesus draws a conclusion from what he has just laid out in these previous verses. When a person responds to you with hate and persecution, you would do well to remember that it isn't so much about who you are but more about who Jesus is. So don't take things so personally. You know, people will hate you and even treat you inhumanely at times because they don't know God. And if they did, they would accept you, not reject you. Okay. How people treat Jesus, how they think about Jesus or accept Jesus says everything about their relationship to God. It's more about that, less about you. If you hate and reject Jesus, you hate and reject his disciples. And not to mention the father who sent his son. So here's the links that make up the chain. Okay, when you experience opposition from others, it's because they're really opposing Jesus. Do well to remember that. And if people are opposing Jesus, it's ultimately because they don't know the father. So those who are opposing Christians and their ministry do so ultimately because they are opposing God. They don't really know God. 
And it doesn't really matter what they say about God. When a person, by the way, and that leads me to say this. When a person is convinced that they know God, and many people in our world are very convinced that they know God. But in reality, are ignorant of him. um, Do you know what that results in? It results in delusion and irrationality. You know, that's what you see here. It's also what you see in many parts of our world today. People representing other religions and other gods. And at the same time, killing Christians and doing so to the glory of their gods. Praising their gods for doing their gods work. All the while killing, you know, Christian people. That's the delusion. You know, uh, Colossians one twenty four. Uh, I guess I don't have Colossians one twenty four. Did I skip it? I guess I didn't put it in here. Sorry about that. Colossians one twenty four says this, and you could you could just jot it down and just hear me say it. Uh, it it uh, Paul says this. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up. What is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body? That is the church. If you've ever read that and were puzzled by it, um, it actually has relevance for what we're talking about here this morning. Paul is basically affirming that what Jesus said about their suffering for his sake was being fulfilled in his own life. Because Paul's enemies couldn't get at Jesus anymore. They had to settle for the next next best thing. And that is we're going to persecute Paul. And so this filling up, you know, of the afflictions, it, it, it sounds almost heretical. Like, oh, what is he completing the sufferings of Christ? Not saying that. He's saying that, uh, you know, if they could, they'd persecute Jesus more, but he's not here anymore. So they, what, they, what do they have to do? Turn their attention to me, closely connected to Christ. And I'll fill up in my flesh what they couldn't do to Jesus anymore. And basically, the punchline is, um, to a lesser or greater degree, that's what they're going to do to you, Christ's followers, as well. So again, we ought not to take persecution personally. They're getting at us because they can't. Get to Jesus, and we ought to embrace that truth just as the apostles did. Look at verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Did you know that not all unbelief is created equal? That God will hold some more accountable than others for their unbelief. That is the point that Jesus is making here and in verse 24. Be careful, by the way, as you read this, that you don't misunderstand Jesus' point. He's not saying, okay, not saying that he did a disservice to those whom he has ministered the gospel. As if to say, you know, if I had only left you alone, if I didn't come and preach the gospel to you, if I didn't come and speak the word of God to you, then you'd all be sinless. 
You'd have no sin. No, that would be silly. He's not saying that. Jesus is pointing out, though, that by his coming to them, by giving them access to the incarnate Son of God and a direct exposure to his message, they are now guilty of the most heinous of sins, outright rejection of his gracious divine revelation and rebellion against God. It is this egregious intentional sin of rejecting God come in the flesh that they wouldn't have been guilty of until now. This is incredible privilege and they have scorned it. No human beings in the history of mankind could ever be more guilty of sin than these who have received the greatest revelation in the person of Jesus. So the point that Jesus is making is that they would have been less guilty than they are now had Jesus not come. D.A. Carson in his commentary said this, he said, rejection of Jesus's words and his works is thus the rejection of the clearest light, the fullest revelation, and therefore it incurs the most central deep stained guilt. Very true. Any person given this amount of divine revelation in the person of Jesus and then rejects it is culpable to the highest degree. And it's almost an understatement to say that they have no excuse for their sin. Incredible words here. But you know, having said all of that, can I say to all of you who are sitting here this morning, listening to this message, and likewise, rejecting the person and message of Jesus, let me just say this. Although you may not be as guilty as the audience that stood before Jesus, make no mistake, you are still plenty guilty before God for your sin of rejecting divine revelation. I'm preaching the word of God to you this morning. And the word of God is an extension of God himself because you can never separate God from his word. And if you reject his word, your sin is likewise culpable. So you're not off the hook either. Religious privilege, by the way, and for everyone who attends this church, right? Believer or not. Kids. I realize most of our kids are gone, you know, here this weekend at the retreat. But for every kid who grows up in this church, hearing these messages, sitting under the children's church, the youth ministry and so forth. Religious, you are privileged. And religious privilege is a dangerous thing. Because if you're not taking advantage of the privileges that you have, this church, your parents, the scripture, right? Um, If you're not taking advantage of those things to ultimately lead you to heaven, these privileges will only serve to sink you deeper into hell. The more light that you have been afforded, the more responsible that you are to God. Jesus goes on to say in verse 23, 
Whoever hates me hates my father also. You know, some of the people to whom Jesus addressed would have made the claim that they love God, that they were worshipers of God, that they obeyed his law, but were at the same time opposing Jesus and his ministry. They didn't believe his claims and they were rejecting his message. And Jesus wants them to know that their attitude towards him is indicative of their attitude towards God the Father. You know, there is such a tight connection between Jesus and his Father that whatever your heart is towards Jesus, whether it is supportive or hostile, is identical to your attitude towards God the Father. And this is how close of a union there is between the father and the son. So hatred towards Jesus, regardless of whatever it is, the grand deal statements of your relationship with God, whatever you say is hatred towards God. If you hate Jesus, there can be no bifurcation or of affection or commitment between one or the other. Right In this context, the Jews, they've professed their love for God the Father, and yet they hated Jesus. And this means that the God that they professed to love was not the true God of the Bible, but it was actually one of their own making. Let that sink in for just a minute, right? Because as you look around our world today, how many more people are doing the exact same thing? Professing a love for God, but it's not the true God. It's really a God of their own making, of their own imagination, right? One that fits their life, made in their own image, right? That fits their lifestyle and approves of how they live. How convenient. Verse 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen And both hated me and my father. It's a parallel statement, right? With verse 22, which we just looked at. Had Jesus not done the kind of unique miracles that testified to his identity, coupled with the hearing of the gospel message that he gave, they wouldn't be as guilty for their sin as they are now that they have had these privileges. Again, They are the recipients of the fullest revelation ever afforded to man. And they have scorned it rather than receive it. The nature of their rejection is emphasized in the verbs seen and hated, which are both found in the perfect tense in the Greek, which basically indicates this is a settled, permanent, ongoing attitude. They are the most culpable the most guilty of sin because they were privileged with the most light. This rejection is going to ultimately lead these unbelieving Jews to put Jesus up on the cross. By the way, that's a very similar sentiment to what Jesus said on a different occasion uh, as recorded in Matthew 11, 20 to 24. Wow, that's really little, huh? Um, Let me just take you there. If you maybe turn in your Bibles, if you have x-ray vision, maybe you could see that up there. But in Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 to 24, let let me just point out 
this passage for a moment so you can kind of see the parallel nature of what he said on this occasion. In Matthew 11, verses 20 to 24, this is what he said. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works had uh, done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Jesus' point is essentially the same. More light equals more responsibility. Now, understand what he's saying. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum were all rebuked to the highest degree because they had been the beneficiaries of more light, and yet they still refused to repent. You know, by seeing Jesus' miracles and persisting in unbelief, they can expect to experience a judgment on judgment day that will be appropriate to such a high-handed sin. By comparison, the judgment that awaits Tyre, Sidon, and shockingly, even Sodom, the latter, in fact, notorious for its rampant wickedness, will have a far less harsher judgment by comparison because they weren't the recipients of the same amount of light. In fact, Jesus says that had they been given the same quality of light as Chorazin, Pesida, and Capernaum, they would have actually repented if they had been the recipients of that much light, making them less guilty. They're guilty nonetheless, but they would have been less guilty. Yes, all these nations, all of them, will experience God's wrath in judgment on judgment day. But not to the same degree. It's a sobering truth. You know, if you could uh, ask these same people who are experiencing God's wrath in hell right now. Those in Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum would tell you. That they wish that they could trade places with those from Tyre, Sidon, uh, uh, Sidon, and Sodom. If we could, we would trade places with them. Because to suffer even a degree less in eternity would certainly make a difference to those who are there. Regretting forever the decision that they made in this lifetime. Don't let this be you. All right, going back to verse 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. You know, hatred for Jesus ought not to be thought of as unexpected. I think we kind of all know that now, right? In fact, the Old Testament scriptures predict that this very thing would happen. You know, most likely... 
there's a number of passages that he could be alluding to. I would say most likely the passage that he's referring to is Psalm 69, verse 4. This isn't the whole thing. This is just the part that affects us here. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without a cause. The rest of it, by the way, says this. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What what I did not steal must I now restore. But this is the part I want you to focus on. Those who hate me without cause. This psalm, by the way, 69, was considered messianic. And in it, David speaks of the hatred that others had for him for no legitimate reason. No basis whatsoever to hate him. And yet they hated me, but without a cause. This form of prophecy, by the way, the technical term for it is typology. Um, And basically what it means is that what is said about David is going to mirror itself in his messianic son, Jesus. And the irony of all of it is that the Jews who claimed such a zeal for the Old Testament scriptures, notice that Jesus says their law to kind of make this point, they claim to be the upholders of the law, right? The ones that guard the law are oblivious to the fact that they are unwittingly fulfilling this prophecy that condemns their rejection of Jesus, the Messiah. So they who take so much pride in the law, Jesus is saying, you don't even obey it. You don't even follow it. Verse 26, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. All right, we take a hard turn now. And, you know, because because of this statement here, some have thought that this just seems out of place, right? The Holy Spirit, where did this come from, right? This, this seems like maybe it was imported from somewhere else. It comes out of left field and just breaks the continuity of the conversation here, right? Well, at first glance, that, that may appear that way. But as we'll see, it actually fits the context quite nicely. We've been in the context of persecution, right? Focusing on its cause. And by the way, just for a forward look, when you look at the very next section in chapter 16, Jesus is about to shift the focus to how the disciples ought to respond to it after he's gone. Now, Think about how these verses connect that these, this section, those two sections. If hatred towards the disciples was really motivated by hatred towards Jesus, how will that continue uh, once Jesus is gone? He goes back to heaven. Well, the answer is found in this verse and the next. The Holy Spirit will be present within the disciples testifying about Jesus to the world. So the son will be gone from the world soon, but the spirit will replace him. And this is the point. This isn't a downgrade by going from Jesus to the spirit, right? You're not downgrade. Oh, just the spirit comes now. We were so much better off with Jesus here. No, he himself is equal to the son and the father. He is not inferior in any way. 
Yes, he is subject to the authority of the father and son as seen here, but he is every bit as an equal part of the Godhead, right? And John makes it ever so clear that the spirit is connected to the father and the son in the most intimate way. Once again, we see the doctrine of the Trinity on display in the gospel of John. Father, Son, and Spirit working together, accomplishing the one will of God. It's also worth mentioning here that a masculine pronoun is used of the Spirit, even though the word is neuter. So even though that this is incorrect, grammatically speaking, so, you know, John would have failed his Greek text, uh, test if he had turned it in this way. It is theologically correct because the spirit is a personal being and not a force or an it, right? So the word spirit is neuter, but Jesus uses a pronoun, personal pronoun, masculine pronoun of the spirit. All right. Let me give you a, a, a historical theology note here. Okay. And uh, I don't want to spend too much time on this, okay? Uh, But I think historically speaking, it would be irresponsible for me not to mention it, considering how significant this verse was and is um, in the split between Eastern and Western Christianity. You know, the creed that came out of the Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, which was an elaboration of the Nicene Creed that came out of the Council of Nicaea in 325, said this. This is only in reference to the Holy Spirit that I'm I'm quoting this part because it has to do with our verse. It said, and in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. Did you notice how the language in this creed in 381 is based on this verse? Did you notice that? What the ancients meant by this statement, however, is not what John meant by it. Uh, The ancients used the language of procession from the father. They meant it ontologically. Now, what I mean by that is they were referring to the Spirit's eternal relation of origin, meaning that the Spirit's deity, his Godhood, finds its source from God the Father. And this is analogous to what the Creed said about the Son. And we're not going to quote that here, uh, but it it was said earlier in reference to the Son that he was begotten of the Father before all the worlds. In other words, eternally begotten from the father meant that he receives his deity from the father. That how do you account for the son's deity? They would have said he was eternally begotten from the father. So he receives his deity from the father. They said the same thing in reference here to the spirit based on this verse that the spirit proceeds from the father, which means he receives his godhood or his deity from the father. Now, here's what, why I mentioned this, because it's, it's historically important. When the Western Church, apart from the consultation with the Eastern Church, added to the creed, 
who proceeds from the father and the son. That little phrase and the son is a single word in Latin filioque. So this became known as the filioque controversy. They did so by arguing that John 16, 7 gave them biblical support. The Eastern Church was extremely unhappy. And that unhappiness has lasted for a thousand years. To say the least that the Western Church would unilaterally alter a creed that was so historically significant to the church. And they responded that if you say that the Spirit's procession, meaning his deity, originates in both the Father and the Son, then it threatens the Father's grand position as the one ruler of the universe and likewise compromises monotheism. So this, among other concerns, is what led to the split between Eastern and Western Christianity in 1054. It's a split that continues to the present day. And that's the reason why I mention it here, not to confuse you with with church history, but just to say that this verse has been controversial for more than a thousand years. And it, it, it was one of the main reasons, not the only reason, but one of the main reasons that there was a split between the Eastern Church, Eastern Orthodoxy, Greek Orthodoxy, all of that, and the Western Church. You'll have to take my church history class to hear my take on issues relating to this controversy, and so I'm not going to elaborate on that here. I just wanted to mention that. I will, however, point out that this verse, okay, verse 26, which we just looked at, has nothing to do with issues relating to the Spirit's eternal relation of origin to the Father and should have never been used in this discussion altogether. No, it's about the Spirit's earthly mission from the Father to bear witness about His Son after the Son goes back to heaven. Jesus wants His disciples to know that the Spirit will be present with them to continue His ministry. But it serves as an important reminder that we can sometimes argue about the exact wording of a passage and still miss what that passage is really talking about. I think it's a lesson for all of us here. Verse 27, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. You know, the final verse of the chapter contains a parallel idea with the previous verse. The spirit is going to testify about Christ, but he's going to do it through Christ's disciples. Jesus is instructing his disciples that because they have been with him from the beginning of his ministry, whose lives would be forever changed by his life, the natural consequence is that they will be his witnesses after he's gone. Historically speaking, we know that's exactly what happened. As the apostles took the gospel to the populated world, and most of them died for their faith in Christ while doing so. Obviously, uh, this comment was directed towards Jesus' first disciples, but again, It has obvious relevance for all Christians by application uh, as the apostles set an example for all believers, including us, who follow after them. So don't miss the point that's being made here. Your witness 
is tied to the Holy Spirit's witness. But there is nuance in how to understand this. First of all, understand that although the Holy Spirit will bear witness about Christ through you, that doesn't mean that you don't have a responsibility to actively witness about Christ. You do. You have that responsibility. If you are not telling others about Christ and his gospel, you are neglecting your God-given responsibility to do so. Now, at the same time, the Holy Spirit is the primary witness of Christ working through you. You know, only he can break through a person's sin-shielded heart, convict him of the truth, and bring him to Jesus. You know, I, I hope this fact, by the way, kind of takes some of the burden off your shoulders. It's not your job. Well, uh, no, I'm sorry. Let me rewind that. It is your job to tell other people about Christ. But it's the Spirit's job to save them. You don't have the spiritual power or ability to save another person. So don't put that pressure upon yourself. You know, parents, as you're sitting here this morning, you can't save your kids. You, you guys know the old saying, right? That you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. That's just as true with the gospel. We can only walk them up to Jesus, but we can't make them put their faith in him. No matter how much pressure you put on them, whether it's our kids or anyone else for that matter, we can only present the gospel, represent the gospel, invite them to believe the gospel, and then we leave the results up to the Holy Spirit. You know, as we close the door on chapter 15, uh, we remind you of some of its main emphases uh, of it. First of all, you remember back in chapter uh, at the beginning in, in verses 1 to 11, there was the main emphasis on the believer's relationship to Christ that he abide in Christ as the branches to the vine. Remember that? Secondly, he talked about there was the, the emphasis on relating in love towards one another. Not just any version of love, but the same self-sacrificing love that Christ had already expressed and modeled to them. And then lastly, today, there was the emphasis on the believer's relationship to the world and the need to remember that it's going to hate you for Jesus' sake. And you ought not to be surprised because that's what you signed up for when you became Christ's disciples. A couple of things I want to leave you with as we close the, the, the door on chapter 15. Although there are literally hundreds, if not thousands of different religions and philosophies in our world today, they really only boil down to two. Christianity, where you are re redeemed by and in union with Jesus as his disciple, or you are part of this world system that encompasses everything else. That's it. That's all there is. This world is under the thumb of the devil and he inspires and controls all the false religions and philosophies that lead people away from God to be dependent upon anything and anyone other than the Lord Jesus. They come in all different shapes and sizes, but they all effectively do the same thing 
They damn your soul by leading you astray. They're all part of this world system. If you love Jesus and you truly belong to him, you can expect that you will be hated by the world. But that hatred is indirect. They hate you because you represent Jesus. The greater your witness is for Jesus, the more opposition and animosity you can expect as your ministry will be an extension of his. Being a witness for Jesus is hard. Comes with its challenges, right? But what a privilege. What a joy. For those of you who are present this morning, who haven't given your lives to Christ, I just want to remind you that you have been privileged with much revelation as you have heard the preaching of God's word And I will tell you very frankly and upfront, you are accountable to it. You have every reason to believe and every kind of excuse not to believe. But if you're honest with yourself, it's not because of lack of evidence to believe, but it's more about a desire to hold on to your sin. Let that go and experience what true freedom in Christ really is. Don't be like Jesus's audience who had every opportunity to repent and believe in Jesus and chose to reject him and are now paying forever for their sins. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time to hear the words of Jesus, to hear the sobering reminder, Lord, of what it means to be his followers and the type of rejection and animosity that comes with it. Help us, Lord, to embrace the challenge to embrace what's here, Lord, and pray that uh, we would strengthen our faith by looking to him and relying upon him for all of these things we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.